are living in troubling times. But what does it mean to stay with the trouble, to work through it, to participate in it, even to redeem it? Welcome to Staying With The Trouble. In this podcast, we're bringing you conversations with those who have thought through a trouble for themselves, often in the face of personal upheaval or challenge. We've discussed topics ranging from race to COVID, from the environment to sexuality. And today we bring you another that we hope will be both interesting and inspiring. My name is Tim Howells. And I'm Chris Baker. And we're bringing you these podcasts from the William Temple Foundation, a public theology think tank founded in memory of Archbishop William Temple. His vision laid the foundations of a post-war welfare state and his work continues to prompt questions about the sort of society we want to build today. Today I'm very pleased to say we're joined by Dr Anna Rowlands, St Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought at the University of Durham. Anna, welcome to Staying with the Trouble. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, So an opening question that we ask all our our guests is just name for us uh, the trouble that you're staying with, please. Yes, so I probably have to be careful how I phrase this because the trouble that I'm staying with is really the question of human migration and how we think in ethical, political, theological terms um, uh, and most importantly human terms about the reality of people on the move. And the trouble is not that people move, I think that's a natural condition, but rather that the way in which we deal with that politically has become a massively contested and problematic issue. And um, I think you've written quite recently about that uh, in a report uh, for the Jesuit Refugee Service. Can you say a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so the Jesuit Refugee Service is based in the east end of London in Wapping and it provides support for about 250 people who are living in asylum-based destitution. So in other words, who meet the Joseph Rowntree Foundation criteria for living without any recourse to public funds, are unable to work to support themselves. So many are living on night buses, uh, sofa surfing or in church-based guesting uh, hosting arrangements. And the report was an attempt to listen to the experiences of those who are living in destitution on a day-to-day basis. And I didn't want to look at it simply in terms of policy, but rather to look at how individuals in that situation pursue the normal human goods that you and I uh, also pursue in our lives and to understand the way in which those goods are frustrated and are enabled by real communities on the ground. We'll come back to some of those findings in a moment, Anna, but can we first of all go back Were there any aspects or elements of your own background that led you to think in this direction? Yeah, well, I'm the product of what would now be called uh, unskilled or low-skilled economic migrants in my grandparents' generation. So uh, my paternal grandparents both came uh, from Ireland, um, from the Republic of Ireland to the UK. My grandfather, when he was 15, he arrived uh, and lived, as far as I can work out, sleeping rough, doing agricultural work, and then ended up driving a JCB and digging roads for the rest of his life. My grandmother came in service, as, as people did in those days, as a cook to a GP family uh, in Stockport, but then ended up quickly in factory work, um, which is what she did until she died in her 50s. Um, 
So yeah, so my family background is very much Irish immigrant roots. And I think that shaped my sense that both rootedness, having a very strong sense of cultural identity and uprootedness were features um, of uh, so many people's lives. And those questions have intensified, I think, from my my grandparents' generation uh, till the point where I was picking this up as a concern really in the early 2000s uh, when I was working then in an Anglican theological college, uh, Westcott House in Cambridge and training ordinance for the Church of England. And I kind of realised that those questions around migration and the experience of migration were suddenly going to become um, front of our political uh, register. And I suppose I engaged with it again at that point. And I think at that time, you also began volunteering at a an immigration reception centre. Would you like to say something of your experiences there? Yeah, so I decided that my um, ordinand students should probably have a placement option that involved sort of experiencing the immigration system. And I thought that if I was going to require that of them, I probably should put myself on a placement first. And that really changed my life. I think sometimes you have experiences that just shift the path of your life in ways that you could never have expected. And walking through the doors of, of Oakington just changed my life. And I heard stories, I encountered realities at a human level, but also in terms of my gradual recognition of what was happening to the British nation state that just made me realise that the entire direction of my academic thought, um, as well as my sense of being a political uh, a citizen of a nation state, that I needed to take those things very seriously. So Oakington was the beginning of that path, which was community organising, but also um, was was deeply theological. I mean, I think amongst the things that I saw there that troubled me most um, were experiences of psychological um, trauma uh, and even, I think, psychological torture, but also just the sheer level of rightlessness that people were living with, just the lack of recourse to basic legal process that I do think people in the UK expected that people in the migration system would have and the brutalising psychological impact of being detained without having committed a crime. Um, we just cannot underestimate the impact of that on a human being. And we do know now that the, the impact of even short periods of immigration detention, so detention for administrative purposes rather than because you've committed a crime, has long-term potentially irreversible impacts on people's psychological health. How did you manage that dislocation between kind of what the state was saying it was doing in these spaces and what was actually happening to people? Yeah, so what people who'd been detained said to me was that they felt that the experience of immigration detention was quite different from, for example, being in prison serving a sentence. A really simple way of putting this is that detainees say that they count their days up rather than counting their days down. And it's the fact that it is indefinite, that they do not know at what point they will be released, that they do not know or really understand often why they're being held and what its purpose is, and that they feel that the structures of the system as well as the social messaging of detention is about a basic process of breaking down hope, hope of entry, hope of success, and that in the process, what they lose is a deep sense of being connected to other people, having deep self-worth and being able to achieve goods for themselves. So it creates a sense of dependency, of isolation, of, of futility. And they feel as if they're being told that they are basically superfluous 
um, humanity. And I think that that messaging is right down from the details. So one um, detainee said to me that he was a very, he considered himself a very gentle personality and had taken pride in that before he was detained. But to get even basic things like a toothbrush or access to a razor, he had to become incredibly aggressive and assertive. And he ended up with a sense of self-loathing when he left attention because he felt his fundamental character had been changed, that he was not capable of empathetic communication uh, once he emerged compared to the kind of personality he was. And he had to reteach himself empathetic connections with other people as a result. So I think that basic social messaging feels really intentional. You know, we talk about a hostile environment and there was even a, a grouping in government given that name. Immigration detention is the ultimate experience of a hostile environment. So, you know, you you saw it firsthand, witnessed it firsthand, this kind of visceral state of exemption that the state imposes on on people who are, you know, um, rootless and migrant. And that's clearly, as you said, had a, had a big influence on your kind of academic trajectory. Um I suppose it'd be good to hear a bit more now about the sort of key writers and thinkers that have that have influenced your journey into this area of research and activism. You talk about the kind of influence of, of a sort of a triad or trinity of three uh, amazing women thinkers from the 20th century, all of whom kind of cross over between sort of Jewish and Christian identities and sensibilities, but all all speak out of this kind of experience of the Jewish refugee experience. Uh, and these women are, are Gillian Rose, Simone Weig and Hannah Arendt. And I think I'm right in saying it was Gillian Rose that first set you on this path. Could you say a little bit more about her thought and what attracted you to it? Yes, yeah, so Chris, you're absolutely right that Gillian Rose uh, was really my sort of gateway into realising the connection between these three women thinkers. And I have lived with their thought for over 20 years now, really, and they've remained the three key voices for me. I've tried to get away from them, but it's never worked. Um, so Gillian Rose, um, for me, was really important because... Um, I read her when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge. I was studying social and political sciences. I'd come from this really quite Catholic background into studying the secular social sciences. And I felt that there was this disconnect between these two parts of my life and these two parts of my brain almost. And there really wasn't a way to bring them together. And for the first time, I found somebody who seemed able to speak to both that religious sensibility and also the political and philosophical sensibility. And so Rose's thought became absolutely critical for me. And she uses Simone Weil and Hannah Arendt as part of her thought. Now, Arendt became significant because of her work on being human in modern societies. So uh, following the Second World War, writing about the experience of the Holocaust, she begins to rethink basic categories around good and evil, around political community, around the politics of membership, and particularly her work about how the Holocaust had changed the narrative about what it meant to be a human being. And she does this by looking in particular, obviously, at the structure of totalitarianism and at the Eichmann trial. And she begins to realise that there is something about the way we use modern politics that isn't just about trying to achieve particular ends, uh, particular mechanisms, but it actually is about the scripting of what it means to be a human being. And the more that I was doing the work that I ended up doing at Oakington and, and afterwards on migration, the more I realised with Aaron's work that she was inviting us to see how political structures perform 
an idea of being human. They teach us something. They try and instruct us through the use of these structures in a narrative of what it means to be a human being. Now, Arendt's work on that became hugely important to me. And, and really, it was Rose that was the, the uh, entry point um, for thinking about that. Rose's own work is, well, for me anyway, is structured around this temptation that we have when we're faced with a difficult social issue to rush to do what she describes as mending the middle, finding new holy middles, because we cannot live with the trauma and the difficulty of what she describes as the broken middle, which is where you have two incommensurate realities that both exist and which somehow you have to figure the difficulty of. And she believed that lots of intellectual thought, lots of political mechanisms were about avoiding and evading the reality of that broken middle. And that theology, as much as politics, was given to the search for holy middles to rush to mend that process. And in order to deal with that broken middle, you say Rose reaches into the work of Simone Weil. How does she do that? One of the things that's central to Simone Weil's work um, is this idea that force, violence, is an absolutely constituent part um, of our reality. Not that we should normalise it, but rather that we should attend constantly to the presence of force and violence as a social reality. And that only by confronting that history of force, that history of violence that's ever-present, can we possibly speak of love and justice. So like Rose says, you've got to not want to flee the broken middle you've got to as she says keep your mind in hell and despair not stay with the trouble stay with the difficulty so they was giving a language for saying you know what stay looking in the face at violence and affliction this is the only pathway to being able to speak with any integrity about love and justice the only way to mediate the gospel is to stay with this difficult reality first and so I found in this configuration between Rose's language of the broken middle Vey's understanding of the pervasive history of force and the desire to overcome that with a reality of love and justice, but only by attending to it. And Arendt's insistence that we pay attention constantly to this developing narrative that never stays still of what so it means to be human. That, for me, became a really important sort of trinity. So there's of connected something ideas. about um, mid to late 20th century philosophy that encourages that attentiveness to the trouble, as you've put it there, Anna. What about deeper? Um, timelines in philosophy or even in literature is there a refugee memory in other aspects of uh, world literature or other disciplines that you've uh, had a chance to look at yeah, well, I'm actually quite interested in this question of refugee memory. And actually, um, Vey herself writes on this quite extent, well, quite extensively. So one of her most um, enduring essays is on Homer's Iliad. And she writes about the way in which the Iliad, um, so Homer's Iliad, is written as a kind, well, she thinks, as a kind of re refugee testimony. So she thinks that that the Iliad must have been written by passed on tales of refugeedom and that one of the crucial ways in which we understand refugee experience and the difficulty of refugee experience is precisely by um, looking at the way in which refugees write that experience. And she argues that the Iliad is written in such a way that it isn't a simple story of blame, of guilt and innocence, but rather that the main subject focus of the Iliad is the history of force itself. 
Um, and I think that so much refugee writing, refugees writing their own experience exactly stays with the trouble. It stays with the difficulty of identity, belonging, uh, of, of um, the fight for survival. Um, and it produces from that a wider set of ethics um, that help us focus on that broader question of what it means to be human. Now, those three philosophers you've just mentioned, and particularly Simone Weil, came back to you, didn't they, Anna, when you were writing or preparing for a report for the Jesuit Refugee Service between, I think, 2017 and maybe last year, for our welfare and not for our harm. Can you first of all explain or describe what you did in preparing for and writing that report? Yes, so I interviewed around 30 um, people who were living in asylum-based destitution um, at the the Jesuit Refugee Service. And as I said, I interviewed them not only looking at their experiences of what had gone wrong with their home office process um, and their journey, but rather to really talk to them about being human beings who pursue particular goods in the world and what had enabled those to be pursued and what had been a source of frustration. Now, the interesting findings to come out of those interviews were really about what the asylum process, including detention, but not only immigration detention, does to people's human uh, capacity, skills and sense of themselves as dignified people. And the key things that people told me repeatedly was, first of all, that once you've experienced um, the enforced worklessness of the asylum process, so existing without a right to work, and if you've experienced detention on top of that as well, it so impacts your sense of being a human being with skills and capacities. There is this sense in which what it kills in you um, is a sense of, of time, of time being rightly ordered, um, of promise, of capability. And so much of what you experience is an endless process of the diminution of skills, capacity, and your own sense of being a kind of contributing human being. And the experience of that was was long lasting. So much of the early part of the report is an attempt to talk about this sense in which time becomes compressed, distorted. Now, interestingly, once we hit COVID-19 and lockdown, I began to notice very quickly how our experience, non-refugee experience um, of of lockdown, paralleled really closely what refugees told me about their experiences of living in the time-compressed and distorted um, asylum process. They were experts by experience in much of what we've been trying to wrestle with and find language for um, over over recent months. So the first part of the report was really um, about that. And then the second part was actually about interpreting refugees' own religious experiences. Um, So many had found new readings of the scriptures, they'd found a kind of re-engagement with their own religious texts and traditions, whether Muslim or Christian, and I became fascinated with the kind of passages from scripture that they turned to. Um, So the the main um, scriptural text that came up again and again was from the letter to Jeremiah, and uh, sorry, the letter to the exiles from the book of Jeremiah. Um, and it's the section where there is this promise that there is a plan for your welfare, that God has a plan for your welfare and not for your harm. And this notion that somehow there must be a kind of transcendent plan that makes sense of the kind of experiences that people were having and that guaranteed some wider so what, form of welfare within the span of a life became really So you're, that's people. brilliant. You, there was a re-scripting going on, in, as it were, from within the walls of the centre through the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in that instance. How can that script, though, be rewritten um, at a 
more macro level, what can politics do? What can uh, actors who are outside the centre do to begin to re-script that humanness? Um, so I think that rescripting is exactly the right phrase. And the reason that I gave the report the title for your welfare and not for your harm was precisely because what refugees were asking was that their own experience be taken into account by policymakers, that the system itself be understood as service um, to those who w- uh, were wanting to claim asylum and not simply as something done to refugees. And therefore, I think constructing an asylum system which actually understands the human experience of inhabiting it is crucial. And the ability of organisations like JRS to campaign and advocate for a system that is for your welfare and not for your harm, that does no harm in addition to the trauma that's already been experienced. I think that's the area where faith-based organising has a huge amount to contribute and where there is a direct analogy between the individual experience at the micro level and what we can do to change the system at a macro level. That shift towards from the micro to the macro brings us on nicely, I think, to uh, the other area that we want to really discuss in this podcast, which is the, the publication of Pope Francis's latest encyclical, um, Fratelli Tutti. It's a wonderful document that's, you know, just now beginning, I think, to be to be understood, but I think has an extra resonance um, in the light of um, the you know, Joe Biden's uh, uh, designation as, as uh, president-elect and this kind of call for open borders and, you know, a world where everybody is recognised for who they are as, you know, as, as dignified human beings. Um, what, what is distinctive, do you think, about the Pope's message on the migration question in, in his latest encyclical? Well, three things, Chris. Um, first of all, the whole framing of Fratelli Tutti is the idea of basic human kinship, that the most basic fundamental human truth is that we are um, brothers and sisters all in his language, and that kinship is the basic way in which Christian is expected to view the world. Uh, we are all related to all and we are all really responsible for all. And we recoil and we find all sorts of ways to rationalise our way out of that equation. And the Pope just really simply presents that. So insisting on that as the basic anthropology is the first point and that changes everything. The second thing that makes it really interesting as a letter around migration is that he refuses to play off the idea of being a sort of localist person who's interested in the importance of culture and locality and rootedness versus being a cosmopolitan who's concerned with freedom of movement and universal rights, etc. And he tries to reweave the connections between the local and the universal. So he holds up rootedness and the importance of culture and knowing your culture and historical memory, which are really important sort of Latin American influences as well for him that he's bringing to the papacy. He tries to refocus on the ways in which local belonging and universal responsibility always belong together. And there is no opposition between these, despite the ways in which populism or an extreme form of neoliberalism might try and uh, present those to us. The third thing that's really important about the document, and this is where it's really challenging and very different from modern political thought, is that he uses the principle of what Catholic social teaching calls the universal destination of created goods as the basic principle for structuring all teaching on the ethics of migration and indeed as the first principle of the social order. Now, it sounds like jargon. In fact, it's a very ancient patristic teaching of the church that the created goods of the world 
that includes all forms of material resources of created goods are destined for the use and the benefit of all. And that comes from the idea that the created world is given as gift by God. It's given so that we may flourish and the earth itself may flourish by a process of human stewardship over those gifts. And that in that context, there should be a radical equality of access to those goods. Now, in a world where that is manifestly not true, that there is a just distribution of those goods, there becomes a right to migrate when your access to those goods is frustrated. And so the Vatican in this document and the Pope is basically saying this isn't just about political refugees and some sort of leftover from a Cold War mentality. This is about saying that economic uh, migration for those who are economically desperate, um, those who want to engage in a full development of their human capacities but cannot do it where they are, alongside political refugees, alongside environmental refugees, all of them may have a just reason to migrate and the benefits of that migration may well be felt by all if there is a rootedness in local culture um, and a capacity to understand that we are always completed, fulfilled, challenged by that gift exchange with the other. So I think those are the three ways in which the document's got something really distinctive and pretty challenging to say. Thank you. But just maybe picking up on some of the reception to the to the encyclical, um, you've said yourself that uh, maybe maybe parts of the encyclical sound uh, a bit too much like jargon, too much sort of intra, you know intra church language. Um, and I'm just wondering to what extent you think um, how much of a translation job is needed in order to make this this encyclical land politically. Um, and also, I guess, is it too early to say how this will uh, go down with with the wider world? I mean, the danger is that a phrase like the universal destination of created goods does sound like jargon. In fact, it's not modern jargon at all, but I agree it can sound like jargon. However, what's really interesting is journalists immediately picked up on that phrase. They half understood it. They understood it enough to know that it was fundamentally challenging to a liberal worldview. So they got the fact that there was something in this that really was potentially earth shattering. And yet at the same time, we're struggling with exactly what the roots of this idea were. And so I think that that kind of slight incomprehension about, hang on a minute, where does this mindset come from? Where do we place this? That's a genuine um, sort of perplexity, a trouble, if you like, with the world, um, especially the media, getting hold of a document like the one that the Pope has written. So there is work to do to stay with that trouble of how do you translate Christian language that goes back to the origins of the church into a predominantly still liberal mindset that struggles with anything that's outside its own category game. Um, And I think that act of translation, that's the bit that's really tricky and that's the bit that sticks in the liberal throat. But Anna, what difference will Fratelli Tutti make to people who are actually migrating in the world today? One of the things that I think um, Pope Francis cares about more than anything else is not really what academics or even possibly politicians um, make of the document. I think he writes partly so that those who feel that they do not hear their voices and experiences represented in public feel that the document speaks uh, with them. Um, and is a form of accompaniment for them. So I think he would measure the success of the document partly 
um, as to whether or not those who feel themselves so utterly beleaguered in a public space feel that this document speaks to their reality and makes them feel more human and dignified in the process. So I think that we shouldn't just measure the document against the question of what policy does it change, but rather its capacity to speak in a human voice that's largely absent from our public debate. So we're coming towards the end of, of uh, our conversation and um, we've talked you know, very expansively about key philosophical ideas and the experiences of, of those who have been you know, going through the process of migration and, and the Pope's response and everything else. Um, just to bring it back to you in a way, what, what feels like the cost of staying with this particular trouble to you? Um, well, I think the greatest cost in this situation is obviously borne by those who um, are managing the challenge of migration um, journeys. Um, there is a cost to those who accompany in that setting. Um, and I am very aware from, you know, nearly 20 years, 15, 20 years of working alongside those in the refugee sector, both those involved in campaigning work and direct advocacy, those involved in policy and in social provision, that it is gruelling um, to work on issues like this, because you are dealing constantly with the reality of trauma, vicarious trauma, um, and you are dealing with a world of tiny incremental policy gains that you very often lose the minute that you've won them. And so it's very, very fatiguing um, to be constantly feeling like you're making these tiny, tiny changes. And I think that for those who spend a long time in the sector, it is incredibly difficult psychologically and spiritually um, to remain with that. The other thing for me that has been a challenge, I suppose, is I saw things and heard things directly about the nature of the British nation state um, that shocked me deeply. Um, and I felt this kind of lack of confidence um, in my ability to see liberalism and to see the liberal state in perhaps the rosier ways that I had done, um, you know, before I was 30. Um, and I have lived with, I suppose, um, uh, a state of kind of um, extreme sadness um, and anger um, when the liberal state fails to be itself. I had direct experience of people who I was visiting in immigration detention um, who were moved around centres so that they couldn't access their legal rights. Um, I dealt with two cases uh, in which people I was visiting uh, were attempted to be removed from the UK on flights before um, their um, legal appeals um, had been fully resolved. Um, I, on one occasion, um, had to listen to the experience of one of the detainees that I'd been involved in accompanying who had suffered mental torture, um, as I would express it, by being put through a mock removal process, even though uh, a judicial review notice had been faxed through to the centre. But they put him through a mock removal process um, in order simply to sort of manipulate him psychologically. I received a threatening anonymous phone call from the police on one occasion when I reported an assault at the airport at Heathrow um, against somebody who was being removed. Um, and they're kind of experiences that you just honestly don't believe as a British citizen you're ever going to come across directly. And if I'd heard them secondhand, I probably still wouldn't quite have believed them. And you live with the knowledge of those kind of experiences um, and what they imply. Um, and, you know, it's secondhand, but it's, you know, that, that's not straightforward. So you've been on a long journey yourself. You've been challenged. You've been troubled. Where are you now? We sit here in November 2020. 
do you have a sense of hope and optimism for the future? Um, so I suppose two things, one more philosophical, one more practical, do you give me a degree of hope? The first is that I've worked on a project in the Middle East, a research project, collaborative project based at UCL in London, and that's looking at how refugee com- communities support other refugees. And there is a world out there of refugees, second generation refugees, first generation refugees who form communities of support and hospitality. So that's one thing that gives me hope. And the second is really more philosophical and it's back to Arendt, which is to say, because we are created, the fact that we are born, that brings always the possibility of a new beginning. And Arendt writes about this fact of natality as the regeneration principle of our politics. That and the notion that what it means to be public is to create this space between us, born of the fact that we are born and that that ever brings the possibility not not that it will necessarily come about but the possibility of a new beginning a rescripting of our humanness anna thank you very much for a very challenging and informative conversation we have appreciated your time with us today thank you for having me thank you to chris baker our co-host thank you and to rosie dawson our producer And thank you to you, the listener. This is the last in this first series of Staying With The Trouble. Do visit williamtemplefoundation.org.uk to access any of our previous episodes and keep your eyes and ears open for a new series coming soon. Thank you very much and goodbye.